have a Bible, you can open up to Philippians chapter four. We'll be in verses four through nine this morning. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, please go on our church's website, find one of our staff members' email addresses and shoot us an email saying, I don't have a Bible in my possession and we will get one Amazon primed to you so that you can have it in a matter of days and can be in God's word. Uh, you'll see the significance and importance of that even in these moments to come as we dive into this morning's passage. Let me go ahead and pray for us and we'll jump into the scriptures and get after it. God, you are infinite in power. You are infinite in wisdom. You are infinite in goodness. As we talked about last week, all things that we're prone to forget, not just by the day, not just by the hour, but oftentimes by the minute. We're desperate for you. We're more desperate than we even know. Would you meet us in our time as we dive into your word this morning, the very revelation of yourself? I pray that you would not only curb, even eradicate anxiety in our minds and hearts, but that you would give us an even bigger vision for what you have for us in these days and weeks to come. Holy Spirit, would you move in power in the name of Jesus to the glory of God the Father. Amen. My guess is that many of us have experienced some level of anxiety uh, looking back over the course of the past week, perhaps having to do with a concern for your own health in the midst of this life-altering global pandemic or perhaps the health of those you love most and are most vulnerable. Or maybe it's not even so much about health and more about finances as the market continues to struggle and likely will for some time. Or perhaps it's the anxiety associated with the experience of isolation, the question of if things are ever gonna get back to some semblance of normalcy. Or perhaps, like any good exam, it's D, all of the above, a perfect cocktail of all of these things creating anxiety in our minds and hearts. I would ask you, what are your anxiety triggers these days? What are those things that consume your thoughts most in moments of uncertainty? We know that the church in Philippi was anxious about a number of things. Paul's persecution and imprisonment in Roman shackles, for one, not to mention persecution from outsiders that the church in Philippi was experiencing for herself, divisiveness among church members, which can oftentimes happen when things come unraveled. To an anxiety-prone church in the city of Philippi, Paul proclaims one of the most glorious promises in all of Scripture. Philippians chapter four, verse seven. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The word guard in verse seven is a military word, like the guarding of a fortress against enemy attack. This is God promising to protect his people like a warrior from the anxiety that would consume them otherwise. This is God saying, I'll go to war for you. I'll bludgeon the enemy of anxiety for you. I'll crucify the enemy of worry for you. What an incredible promise. A promise that Paul says is ours in Christ Jesus. A promise for those who put their trust in him. A promise for those who are united to him by faith. 
If you're not a Christian, right out of the gate this morning, my prayer for you is that you wouldn't come in to our gathering as we dive into scriptures having to do with anxiety and look for solutions to curb that anxiety and somehow miss Jesus in all of it. Apart from him, there are no lasting solutions for anxiety. And the peace of God, Paul says, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's Jesus who's made a way for us to know the greatest peace, God and sinners reconciled. Jesus entered into our broken world in order to bring down the dividing wall of hostility between holy God and sinful man, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul says elsewhere in Colossians 1, 19 through 22, for in him, in Jesus Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, Paul says, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. That before time began, before the first sin was ever committed, God had a plan, a plan to rescue a people whom he knew would be hostile toward him. And like any major war, he knew that the ending of that war could only come through bloodshed, yet not our blood, but his own blood. That's amazing. That's the kindness and mercy of God. There's nothing we can do to reconcile ourselves to him. There's no change of attitude or disposition toward him that will remove the enmity that exists between us as sinners and he is a holy God. We talked about this just a few weeks ago in our second Corinthians series, Romans 5.11. More than that, Paul says, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. The greatest peace that we can know cannot be earned It cannot be worked for. It cannot be suffered for. All we can do is receive it as a gift. The standard for most people who buy into a a works-based view of salvation is subjective at best, I would say. I'm better than others. As long as I'm better than somebody else, I'm on my way to heaven. To which I would say, what a terribly risky way of thinking and living Jesus says, you don't have to wonder. You can know. Christianity says it's not about you and what you do or don't do. It's about Jesus and what he's done. He lived the perfect, sinless, obedient life that none of us could live. He died the sinner's death that we deserve to die on our behalf. He rose from the grave, slaying the darkened dragons of Satan, sin, and death. If you're not a Christian, I implore you this morning to receive the gift of reconciliation secured by the blood of Jesus Christ. To look to him and trust by faith that the blood of his cross affords you peace with God forever. And here's why I start there. It's because for those of us uninterested in an abiding, intimate relationship with Jesus, the rest of this morning's passage will do nothing more than pave the way for an exercise in futility. But for those of us who love Jesus and trust Jesus, The rest of this morning's passage is gonna show us what the outworking of that kind of relationship can truly be. Those of us in Christ, we get to cast our cares on another. We get to turn it all over to one who's far more qualified to handle our cares than we are. One who loves us so much that he was willing to give his life for us. 
You're loved, Christian. Hear me say that before I say anything else. No matter what you're going through these days, you're loved with a love that outshines all other loves by a God whose peace is sufficient to guard his people from the anxiety that would consume them otherwise. But lest we think that we're simply meant to sit around passively and wait for that peace to overwhelm us, Notice that the hope of verse 7 is preceded by the commands of verses 4 through 6. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. But do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Do these things, verses 4 through 6, and the peace of God, verse 7, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is not a passive exercise for the Christian. How do we experience something of God's peace in the midst of all the uncertainty that surrounds us? To begin with, verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. For one, the experience of God's peace comes as we fight to be happy, not in our circumstances, but in him, to find our joy in him. And to be sure, Paul's not talking about some manufacturing of feelings. Sorrow is real. Pain is real. Let's not forget who's making this declaration. Rejoice in the Lord always, says a man in Roman shackles. Paul's not pinning these words in the midst of a season of great prosperity, telling the rest of us to walk around with a pasted smile. Paul knows something of a kind of peace that's bigger than present circumstance. The kind of peace that sustains imprisoned saints. The kind of peace that many of us need right this very moment. The kind of peace that can only be found in seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. In fighting to delight in him. In fighting to find our joy in him. In the midst of uncertainty and sorrow, God calls us to fight by the power of the indwelling spirit to be happy in him. Knowing that though the Christian's joy may be tested... It can never be fully extinguished by sorrow or circumstance. Charles Spurgeon once said, Our joy no man takes from us. We are singing pilgrims, though the way be rough. Amid the ashes of our pains live the sparks of our joys, ready to flame up when the breath of the Spirit sweetly blows. Our latent happiness is a choicer heritage, he says, than the sinner's riotous glee. Or another way we could say it, Jesus is a treasure whom no man nor circumstance can strip away, and that supremely valuable treasure just happens to be the fount of everlasting joy. The question for us, as we continue to walk through the present reality that surrounds us, is will we drink from that fount in the days and weeks to come? My prayer for each and every one of us during these difficult times is that we would rejoice in the Lord, that we might experience something of his peace in our rejoicing. Paul goes on to say in verse five, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. One of the ways we experience the peace of God is by rejoicing in him, fighting to be happy in him regardless of circumstance. But it's not just about how we relate to God, but also to others. The word reasonableness in verse five can also be translated gentleness. It's the idea of being measured in our response to others, not being contentious, 
not lashing out when things come unraveled. It almost sounds like a fortune cookie statement, doesn't it? Be peaceable with others and you will experience peace. But it doesn't make it any less true. Treating others harshly in the midst of suffering and uncertainty does nothing to eliminate anxiety. It usually ramps it up for us. I mean, let me just ask a question. How many of us, you can raise your hand because I'll never see it as you're scattered in your homes watching this right now. How many of us this week functioned as enemies of our own joy and peace in our dealings with the ones that we love dearest? Solitary confinement has a way of revealing a darkness within. Those moments that I was short with my kids in close quarters this week, not one of those harsh responses caused my stress or anxiety to go away. I wish, I wish that I would have remembered with more frequency the gentleness of Jesus toward me. A gentleness that I don't deserve, a gentleness that's mine by grace alone. As we continually come face to face with the gentleness of Jesus in dealing with us and our sin, it has the power to reorient the way that we relate to others. The experience of God's peace comes in our rejoicing in him and it comes in our relating to others in a spirit of gospel-formed gentleness. Paul goes on to say, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Here Paul presents us with a third command with respect to experiencing God's peace. And it's broken down, notice, into a negative, don't do this, and a positive, do this. The negative, don't do this, is do not be anxious about anything. Don't let anxiety consume you. Rocket science, right? You want the peace of God, don't be anxious. Thanks, Paul. Paul's not offering us novel information here, is he? He's reminding us because we're so prone to forget. The default of the human heart is to worry. It's one of those things we do in order to try to feel more in control of a situation that's out of our control. In some sense, you could say every anxious thought functions like a false prophet, telling us that God's not sovereign or that God's not wise, or that God's not good. That if we just think about the situation a little more, if we just breathe the air of anxiety a little more, perhaps we can manipulate the situation in a way that changes the outcome. As I've said before, like a golfer contorting his or her body post-swing in an attempt to manipulate the path of the ball doesn't give us any more control of the situation than we had before we started worrying in the first place. In fact, it only has the power to make the situation more difficult. Paul says, don't do that. Instead of worrying about the things that are out of your control, run to the one who's in control. Going back to last week, you and I get to live and breathe the air of the theater of God as he tells the story that he intended to tell before anything that was made was made. And the story he's telling is one in which and over which he exercises full control, owning all the rights to the script. He's writing a beautiful story of redemption for his glory, and the pen never has nor ever will leave his hand. Supreme in authority, supreme in power, supreme in wisdom, sovereignly seated on the throne of heaven so that nothing is outside of his plan. And that sovereign God is governing all things for your good, Christian scripting this 
wondrous story of redemption to its consummate end. Paul says, the Lord is at hand. He's near. He will return soon to set all things right. He will return soon to orchestrate the greatest of happily ever afters for the children of God. So don't be anxious. Instead, Paul says, pray. The positive command in verse 6 is unbelievably simple. Pray. Every time you're tempted to try to manipulate your circumstances by dwelling on them just a little more, Psalm 55, 2, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties on him, all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Run to the one who's sovereign over all things. Run to the one who's wise beyond understanding. Run to the one who's working all things for the good of his people. With thanksgiving, Paul says, with a posture of acknowledgement that God is good and we don't deserve any of it. Going back to last week, we deserve death a thousand times over because of our sin. Anything good that we have, any good gift is God caring. Any good gift is God intervening. We have an opportunity to fall on our faces in these uncertain times in gratitude for every good gift that we have. Pleading with God to heal. Pleading with God to save. Pleading with God to sanctify for his glory and the good of those who love him. Trusting him, as I said last week, with the outcome of those very prayers, knowing that he alone is infinite in wisdom. To summarize verses four through seven, fight to be happy in God, Paul says, to treasure Christ above all things. Relate to others in a spirit of gentleness as an outworking of your happiness in God and his gentleness toward you. Cast your burdens on the Lord in prayer, relinquishing your grip on the idol of control. And God will guard the fortress of your heart and mind against enemy attack. He will protect you like a warrior from the anxiety that would consume you otherwise. With a peace, Paul says, that surpasses all understanding, a peace that defies rational explanation. Now, Paul could have ended his letter to the church in Philippi right there. And most of us would say thank you and be on our way. But Paul's not content with our minds simply being emptied of worrisome thoughts as if the ultimate aim were to simply drive out the negative. No, Paul has something significantly more God-glorifying in mind, a far more glorious idea of what it is to live the Christian life, even in times like these, and especially in times like these, which is why Paul goes on to say, verse eight, finally, brothers, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul understands that the Christian life is so much more than freedom from anxiety, though it's certainly not less than that. That in the midst of our present social distancing reality, many of us have been given the involuntary gift of time. Time to ponder, time to think, time to dream. What if our goal was so much bigger 
than simply curbing anxiety in the midst of all that's unfolding around us? What if we spent the coming days and weeks on the playground of Scripture, exhausting our minds on the wonder of who God is? It's part of the reason we spent last Sunday on the sovereignty and goodness of God. In the midst of a sea of information that's not true, in the midst of a sea of information that's not honorable, in the midst of a sea of information that's not just or pure or lovely or commendable, I invite you to get caught up in the story of God, a God who's worthy of infinite praise, and to take that thinking and to then put it into practice for his glory. Paul says in verse nine, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Christianity is most certainly a thinking faith, but it's not just a thinking faith. It's a learning and receiving and hearing and seeing faith, a faith that must be practiced, the the kind of thinking that becomes a part of us, shaping the way we live our very lives. Another way we could say it, Christianity is not a whiteboard worldview, something that can remain in the confines of the classroom. It's a worldview that must be lived out in the everyday that we cannot talk about a sovereign, wise, and good God in the midst of uncertain times without wrestling with the implications of what it means to live in glad submission to that God. The gospel lived in practice, particularly and especially in times like these. I would argue that we have much to learn in the days and weeks to come as the church, as it pertains to matters of mercy and justice, social responsibility and neighbor love as it pertains to how to be the church in the midst of this worldwide experiment in social distancing, as it pertains to how to share the good news of Jesus in the midst of the hopelessness and despair. If only wisdom was universally applied among the people of God, right? Then we could publish a one-size-fits-all COVID-19 playbook for the church. We're being brought face-to-face with our desperate need for the Holy Spirit. We're being brought face-to-face with our desperate need for the wise counsel of other Christians. As we sit under the supreme authority of God's word and sort out what it means to do all to the glory of God. We're sure to fall on our faces a few times along the way, which will only increase our gratitude for God's grace. But I would say this. Better to have danced and stubbed our toe than to have sat in the bleachers and missed the dance altogether. But the greatest promise in all is that God is our partner on that dance floor. Verse nine, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. He promises to be with us every step of the way. His nearness, his presence, a steady presence in the midst of all the unsteadiness that not only has God given us an opportunity to play on the playground of scripture, exhausting our minds on the wonder of who he is, he's given us an opportunity to dance in the midst of a world in which the music has stopped. What if our goal in all of this was so much bigger than simply fighting anxiety? 
What if we spent the coming days and weeks getting caught up in the story of God more than we ever have before? A God who's worthy of infinite praise. What if we put the gospel into practice in these trying times, showing the world that the jukebox hasn't stopped for the people of God? What a unique opportunity that we have before us. May we leverage it for the glory of God, our own joy and peace, and the good of others around us. We're gonna continue to worship together in a couple of ways moving forward in this service. One of the primary ways will be through song. We're gonna continue to sing God's word, to sing God's truth, or perhaps, if nothing more, to let it wash over us as we sit and and receive it together as God's people. We're not gonna participate in communion as we find ourselves in this scattered form of the church gathered, we're gonna hit the pause button on that and allow that to be a sweet moment as we reconvene in this space whenever that may be. The receiving of the sacrament in community as the family of God, the household of faith. But that doesn't mean that we can't stop and remember the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. It doesn't mean that we can't celebrate who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so I would invite you at some point between now and the end of this service to pause for a moment as you're accustomed to doing in this very auditorium and to remember the blood of Christ, the broken body of Christ. To remember that the greatest peace between God and sinners was made at the cross.